The trade deadline is here. Phillies pick up as Drupal Cabrera from the New York Mets. Will they make more moves? We'll talk trade deadline with Tim Kelly. Matt Vizi looks at Jim Tomey's Hall of Fame career, while Matt Albertson looks at trade deadline of yesteryear. All this and more on Phillies Nation, episode 48. Welcome to Phillies Nation Podcast 48, a trade deadline and Hall of Fame Sunday edition of the show. We'll be talking a lot about trade deadlines today. The Phillies picking up infielder Astrubal Cabrera from the New York Mets. Phillies have a little bit of criticism coming their way, thinking that perhaps a, a Cabrera is not the fielder that he once was, and wonder if he can indeed hold down the shortstop position. But the Phillies add a bat with 18 home runs, something the Phillies could really use as some offense so far. Cabrera certainly is about uh, two games in now and, and hitless to this point. But the Phillies should get some much-needed veteran offensive production from Asdrubal Cabrera. Now, will the Phillies make any more moves? That's the question right now as we look at Tuesday's 4 p.m. trade deadline, which will be... Uh, just over 24 hours from when you're probably listening to this. So we should know really soon who the Phillies might pick up along the way. This weekend series against the Cincinnati Reds definitely shows some signs of oil leaking from this Phillies team. Now the Atlanta Braves had four against the Dodgers and they lost three of those games. Uh, but the Phillies all lose three of those four games to the Cincinnati Reds and really fail to, to pick an opportunity to uh, really put themselves at a decent distance ahead of the Atlanta Braves and the Washington Nationals. Instead, as of recording this on Sunday evening, for you to listen on Monday, the Phillies have a one-and-a-half game lead against the Atlanta Braves, who almost no-hit the Dodgers today. And... They now have a lead against the Washington Nationals of six games, and the Nationals are one game under 500 even at this late time. So the Washington Nationals expected to win the National League East before the season, kind of scuffling right now. Uh, and the Phillies are kind of scuffling themselves in another way. You know, you have to wonder if that really grueling series against the Los Angeles Dodgers you know, the, the win that they got in extra innings, that really long, laborious game. You got to wonder if they were finally feeling some of that this weekend. Vince Velasquez goes just five innings uh, in his start, perhaps because he threw some pitches in that uh, it got the win, actually, of the extra inning game. Uh, that certainly was the longest game inning-wise of the year. But, uh, you know, the the offense was mostly silent these couple days after really thumping the Cincinnati Reds the first game of the series. The bats got really quiet. And even as, as Dribble Cabrera has joined the Phillies, we see that uh, he hasn't really been able to help just yet, but but it is early. Uh, Phillies now head up to Boston where they're going to face the Boston Red Sox for two games. The Boston Red Sox are by far the the best team in baseball in terms of record-wise. 
and the Phillies are going to have uh, their their work cut out for them as they face the Red Sox. However, the the one silver lining is they're they're kind of facing the two pitchers that have struggled for the Red Sox the most. Uh, that it, that that comes in the form of David Price, who is certainly not the David Price of yesteryear of the of the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, he's he has struggled with the Boston Red Sox so far. And the Red Sox, even though they are 41 games over 500, that just that just sounds unbelievable. Uh, David Price has a nice one-loss record, uh, but his ERA is at 4.17 on the season, despite being 11 and six. He'll be facing Aaron Nola on Monday, and then on Tuesday, the Phillies face former San Diego Padre Drew Pomeranz, and Pomeranz is one and four with a 6.91 ERA. And the Phillies send Jake Arrieta against him. So the Phillies have their two best pitchers going against perhaps the two pitchers in the Red Sox rotation struggling a little bit. And the Phillies will hopefully try to at least win one of these games. It'd be great if the Phillies walk away with one win. The Red Sox are, like I said, perhaps the toughest team in baseball right now. Probably the early favorites to win the World Series. And... Again, 41 games over 500 is, is not something that's very easy to do uh, for even some of the really good teams out there. So so this Red Sox team is on a historic pace, uh, but hopefully the Phillies catching David Price and Drew Pomeranz, hopefully they struggle just enough for the Phillies to be competitive in this series. But to talk about the trade deadline of 2018 as the Phillies acquire as Drupal Cabrera from the Mets, we welcome Tim Kelly of Phillies Nation. What's up, Tim? What's going on, Frank? Uh, we made it to the trade deadline. We're almost there. It seems like a majority of the big deals are done, so we can exhale and get back to just enjoying game action for the most part. So let's talk about this Estrubal Cabrera trade. What What are your thoughts on this trade? You know, as I mentioned in the open, uh, there's some controversy, if you want to call it that, that some people are worried about the, the glove that Cabrera brings to the Phillies, but it seems like the Phillies are brought Cabrera in for the offense. So what do you think about this trade? Well, I think, first of all, I understand people that don't like to give up young pitchers for rentals, but with Aaron Noah, Zach Eplin, Eniel De Los Santos, Adonis Medina, Ranger Suarez, JoJo Romero, Nick Pavetta, Cole Irvin, you were in a position where you could deal from that depth. And like you said, the, the metrics on uh, Cabrera have not been good defensively, but he's someone that gives you an offensive upgrade over Scott Kingry, at least at, for the time being. He's having one of the best offensive seasons of his career. Not only does he do that, Cesar Hernandez has looked banged up recently, so he gives you another option to play second base like he did on Sunday. And then there's a the chance Michael Franco regresses. So I think while Franklin Kilame is someone if he develops control – he has a chance to either be a good starter or a late-inning reliever. He hasn't done that so far, and I think from the Mets' perspective, it made sense to take that chance on a lottery ticket-type guy for a 32-year-old rental middle-to-corner infielder. From the Phillies' sense, I think this deal was ultimately better than what you would have had to do, what you would have had to part with uh, to land Eduardo Escobar, who ultimately ended up with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And very interestingly, some of the reports out there were that the Phillies did not like the defense of Rosario from the Twins. Uh, you, you take those with a grain of salt. You never really know how how bad they were worried about that, and you never really know about Cabrera. Now, Cabrera hasn't played shortstop in a while. 
Uh, the New York Mets have um, uh, Ahmed Rosario as sort of their their young hot shortstop, and and it was time for him to take over the position, which is probably the main reason that he moved over to second base. Uh, but yeah, but some people are worried about what the metrics are telling us about his defense. And very good point about Michael Franco because he's super hot right now. Uh, we saw Mike Mustakis, who was frequently mentioned as a third base option, get traded to the Brewers. So uh, the Phillies look like they're going to be sticking with Michael Franco for now. But as we've seen over the years, he is a little streaky and he could indeed regress. So the, the Phillies could make other moves. Now, granted, we don't expect them to be big moves. Uh, there was one Manny Machado out there. Uh, but there's still a couple names out there. The Phillies have perhaps been linked to Adam Jones of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, what it sounds like out there is that the Orioles have destinations for uh, for Adam Jones to go if he wants to go. Uh, this might go down to the wire for him to decide if he wants to accept a trade. Uh, if you're a baseball player, don't you want to go join a contender? What do you think about Adam Jones coming to the Phillies possibly? I mean, I guess I think it's not that simple. I think someone that's earned 10 and 5 rights and is a franchise icon has that option to not do that. And I can understand it's him, and he thinks, I'd probably have to move to right field. It's probably only a rental situation. And for as much as Philadelphia is excited that the Phillies are in a position to compete for the playoffs, the Phillies, to me, are not a perfect scenario. This is not a scenario like Boston or New York where you go to and you know you're competing for a World Series. The Phillies could altogether miss the playoffs. They could only make a wild card. They could win the division and make a playoff run, but that's not guaranteed. So while I think it's easy enough to say, yeah, you should leave the Orioles to where 40-plus games out of first base or first place, excuse me, uh, you know, ultimately that wasn't what Adam Jones wanted to do, and that's his right that he's earned by having the 10-5 and five rights. But what do you think of Adam Jones, the player? Do you think he's a good fit for this Phillies team? I think he's a good fit if he's willing to play right field. Now, offensively, this is not the player that was a five-time All-Star, but I think he's a good fit in many ways because not only does he give you someone that I think is an upgrade right now over Nick Williams, he's someone that allows you to slide Nick Williams into pinch hitting. And Nick Williams has thrived this year pinch hitting. He's hitting 400 as a pinch hitter. I think it makes your entire team better. Um and again, offensively, I don't know how much of an upgrade it is over Nick Williams, but in terms of right field building, I think he would be an upgrade. And so the other name out there, now let's talk about this for a quick second. I, I, you know, Matt Clintock was pretty emphatic that he didn't think that the Phillies needed a starting pitcher right now. Uh, but so far, out of the out of the gate since the All Star break, we've seen a couple clunkers of, of pitching performance. One by Nick Pavetta. Um, sorry, you know, I, I, as I said in the open, I'm not that quick to criticize Velasquez for for the short outing the other day because, uh, you know, he only uh, he he came out and won that uh, extra inning game for the Phillies, so he might have been a little uh, fatigued. But um, but has the pitching performance of the starting rotation right now? Have you convinced that the Phillies don't need a starter right now? I think you're in a position where. Anyone knows that the Phillies could make an upgrade. It was just such a weak starting pitching market, and the Phillies are so early in their uh, window of contention, perhaps a year earlier than a lot of people expected, that it just didn't make sense for them to act. They, they felt like they'd rather give Nick Pavetta or Zach Eflin or whoever, Daniel De Los Santos, Vince Velasquez, these innings as opposed to giving up something 
get a Cole Hamels or Jay Hop. Um, and I think in the end, you might see a similar situation with Chris Archer. Chris Archer is much better than uh, his traditional back of the baseball card stats, which leads you to believe uh, he would benefit from being out of the AL East. Anyone would. He'd benefit from not playing for the Tampa Bay Rays. Pretty much anyone would. And he would benefit, I think, from uh, just being on a better team, being interjected into the playoffs. And I, I think he's someone with an all-time historically team-friendly contract that I understand why people are interested in him. But if the price is, I think Jerry Krasnick reported over the weekend that they want a number one type of turn, that's probably just going to be too much for Chris Archer. And Chris Archer, the talks are intensifying. Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times is is saying, and uh, so he could be moved, but it doesn't look like it'll be to the Phillies. The Braves are rumored to be interested. Uh, the Padres are interested. Again, you know, the Padres aren't even a contender, but as you said, the contract looks really good. So a rebuilding team like the Padres might just want to take a chance on him. Although uh, the Braves, there's, there is the, uh, the thought that the Ray Scouts were watching their top prospect, Justice Sheffield, but it's really hard to see the, the uh, Yankees trading Sheffield to acquire Archer. Now, you mentioned Cole Hamels. Hamels ultimately goes up to the Chicago Cubs. He doesn't. They doesn't really cost them a lot. In fact, uh, they even had some help paying down Hamill's salary. So pretty interesting that just three years ago, Cole Hamill's was pitching a no hitter against the Cubs and then getting traded. Here, three years later, he is the trade deadline piece that heads to the Chicago Cubs. Let's talk for a second about when the Phillies made that trade and got their pieces back. Now. Um, a lot of times these trades, you know, they have the untouchables in the system that end up not working out, working out. Uh, you know, you, you don't really know what you're getting until they really make it to the major leagues and, and become something. You know, Dominic Brown was once a top prospect and untouchable in the Phillies organization, and we all know how that went. So let's take a look back at this Cole Hamill's deal of three years ago. And I understand you're, gonna, you're working on a piece for philliesnation.com right now. Is that correct? Yeah, early in the week, one of my Phillies Nuggets pieces this week is going to be looking back on this Cole Hamels trade. And it's interesting because by this point, years later, you usually have a good idea. It's not nothing set in stone, but you have a good idea about how well the trade is uh, going to ultimately look historically. And I'm not sure you have that right now. There's easy parts of the trade to just throw to the side. Alec Asher pitched 12 games for the Phillies. They only took the Matt Harrison contract back in an attempt to increase their trade return. Where it gets interesting to me is Jared Eikhoff, who was initially excellent, pitched just shy of 200 in 2016. That's extremely valuable, but he was injury-riddled season last year and then obviously hasn't pitched this year. Jake Thompson was once a top-50 prospect, who I think a lot of us thought was going to be in the Phillies rotation for years to come. He's flopped for the most part so far. His career-defining performance was a three-inning relief performance against the Nationals earlier this year. He's really in a situation where uh, he hasn't had success in relief, not only at the major league level, but even at AAA this year. He really hasn't been that great. Uh, He doesn't look like he's going to be an overly effective piece coming back. So really what this comes down to is Nick Williams and Jorge Alfaro. Uh, And like I said earlier when we were talking about Adam Jones, Williams, while he's very good lately, he still doesn't feel well, and I still think the Phillies view him as capable of starting but best off, best served coming off the bench where he's thrived this year. And I think their interest in Adam Jones, 
They're interested in some other potential outfielders. That speaks to that because it would have pushed Williams either into a platoon role or one where he's altogether your first piece off of the bench, which is where he was at the beginning of the year when Aaron Altair was getting the bulk of the starts. To me, the make-or-break player in this trade was always Jorge Alfaro. It's just even more make-or-break now that Jake Cousin didn't pan out. So you see the immense potential with him, but I think some people take for granted that he will reach that, and it's not a given because despite the fact that he gets crossed up and allows too many pass balls, I think it's evident that he's become better at receiving Defensive metrics that say he's been one of the top five best catchers this year. His arm is world class. I think he's proven that he's going to be very good defensively. Offensively is where I'm still not entirely sure what he is. He has as much raw power as a young catcher could possibly have. But he only has seven home runs this season to show for it. He's striking out nearly 40% of the time. And he doesn't really walk at a clip that allows you to kind of overlook that strikeout clip. So, uh, he has a negative 4.4 offensive war. So while I view his offensive ceiling as high, I'm not sure he'll ever reach it. And ultimately, how he pans out offensively may determine how we view this trade historically because while Cole Hamels didn't end up being uh, able to help bring Texas to World Series, he was still very good the first two years he was there. You were trading a franchise icon at the back half of his prime. And here we are three years later, and we're still not entirely sure what the Phillies got in return for him. Just a quick question. Now, the, the Phillies did not want to trade for him at this trade deadline, but let's say the Cubs buy him out and he's an affordable option for a short-term deal in this offseason. Do you go Cole Hamels? No, I don't. I, I can send you. You have so many young arms, and even more of these arms are going to be reaching the major league level next year. Donis Medina, Sixto Sanchez could conceivably be reaching the major level. I think you have Jake Arrieta locked into a contract here. You obviously have Aaron Nola, Zach Eflin, Ernest Fontenot, and I think Vince Velasquez is going to be in the rotation this year. And for as much as he's struggled of late, Nick Pavetta's highs have been very good, and I think he's going to be someone that is probably in the rotation to start the beginning of the season. So for the first time in a long time, I think you could see the Phillies almost stand pat starting pitching-wise this offseason. They'll, of course, bring in camp bodies, minor league deals with invites, that type of thing. But I think they're set for a little while starting pitching-wise. Don't they need a, don't they need a lefty long-term, don't you think, just just to sort of give balance to, you know, you, you face somebody else's offense, you know, it would be really nice to have a starting pitcher who can get some other team's, uh, you know, tough lefties out at least once a series. I think that that's completely overrated in today's game. I think it's nice to have a lefty, which is what makes Cole Hamels and Cliff Lee and D.C. Sebastian so valuable. But in the end, you want your five best pitchers out there. And Cole Hamels just straight up hasn't been very good this year and wasn't particularly good last year, also struggled with injuries. So I think if you have a lefty, that's great. And the Phillies have some lefties of the names we mentioned that could get starts. Ranger Suarez could be a name. Uh, Cole could be a name. So you have lefties in-house, and I think if that's something that you value, you have guys that you can make that work with without signing someone. And while we're talking about next year, you know, the Phillies wanted Manny Machado. They seemed like they were willing to, to pay a, a decent price for him, uh, perhaps reportedly including Adonis Medina in any trade that they would make with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, but he's a Los Angeles Dodger, and at the end of the season he's going to be a free agent. Now, I was in the press room with 
uh, John Middleton after the Jake Arrieta signing, and he told a few of us flat out that he has some names circled that he would love to bring to the Phillies this offseason. So the one of those names, now I can't talk about it because, of course, it would be uh, <laughs> breaking the major league rules if they uh, let out that they're interested in a player ahead of time. Uh, but, uh, you know, Middleton has some names circled, and it sounds like he's got the names circled of some superstars, and perhaps Manny Chata, Machado, it would make sense, would be one of them. Uh, what what type of superstar do you foresee this Philadelphia Phillies going after? Now it seems like they want to make the get the impact player, right? As we said before, the drop off from Manny Machado to whoever else they get in this case was Estrubrera is a pretty big drop off. Uh, but they seem like they really want to add an impact bat, a superstar type player. Where do you see them going with this? And I understand you're going to be writing a piece on this too. Yeah, it's gonna be gonna be a busy week. Um, I think the Phillies covet Manny Machado, and that's the worst kept secret in baseball. And I think there's a very real possibility they sign him this off season. But if not, the Phillies, like the Sixers, are star hunting, and there's no shortage of options that are either gonna reach free agency or be conceivable to trade for in the next year or two years. We know Bryce Harper's a free agent this off season, although my guess is that after a down year, at least by his standards. He stays in D.C. on a deal that would allow him to opt out after 2019 or 2020 and reach free agency. So uh, some other options, I think perhaps the most realistic option is Nolan Arenado. He's a free agent after the 2019 season, so you could wait till then to sign him. But I don't hate the idea of giving the Rockies a call this offseason and seeing if they don't think they're going to be able to retain him, it would seem to be very irresponsible not to move him next offseason. So I think... That's a potential option. I think if Bryce Harper ultimately stays in D.C. long-term, Anthony Rendon becomes a long-term option. An interesting name, and Anthony Rendon is a free agent after 2019, and you probably have to wait till then. Another interesting name who's a free agent after 2019 that you're not going to trade for but could reach free agency, and someone we once talked about in the trade return for Cole Hamels is Xander Bogarts with the Boston Red Sox. Now, in theory, it seems hard to imagine them letting him leave, and they might not, but they have to pay Chris Sale at some point. They have to pay Mookie Betts at some point. You can only give so many of these huge contracts out. If Xander Bogarts reaches free agency, he's someone that makes a ton of sense for the Phillies. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt, someone that's a free agent after the 2019 season, although probably a few years older than you would like. And then, Frank, as you know, it, it always comes back to one Mike Trout. I think Trout, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll give this to people, I think it's a bit more realistic than it was a few years ago. I still don't think he's going to reach free agency, though. So what you're talking about is having to give up a trade package, the likes of which the league has never seen. This is the best player since Barry Bonds, one of the greatest players of all time. You would start a package with Sixto Sanchez and Reese Hoskins, and I'm not sure you don't have to put Odubel Herrera in there. And that might sound exaggerating. This is Mike Trout. Like this isn't this type of player doesn't become available. So I understand the intrigue, but giving up that type of package, and then you're also going to have to turn around and sign him for close to or at half a billion dollars. I'm just not sure that's conducive to winning. So. Um, I think your best options, realistically, are either signing Machado this offseason or looking at a guy like Nolan Arenado. And certainly that'd be a great name to bring into Citizens Bank Park. And 
be very interesting to watch. But do you think the fans will be patient enough to wait another year? I mean, I, the fans haven't been patient. There's already people that you, you, you see the comment section saying the Phillies haven't spent. Meanwhile, they spent a, a ton on Jake Arrieta and Carlos Santana last offseason. I think John Middleton's kind of in the same boat, though. He's a lot smarter and is surrounded by smarter people than kind of the, the people that uh, are in message boards and things talking about how the Phillies don't spend money. But I think he's eager to spend that money, which is why Machado makes sense, which is why I wouldn't rule out something with Bryce Harper. Uh, and then you do have the possibility of making a trade this offseason. If not, though, a year is a year. You still have a team that in theory should contend. And then after 2019, there's going to be some other names available. So, uh, But your point is well taken. If Mike Trout isn't available until after 2020, I'm not sure waiting that long makes sense for the Phillies. Well, a lot could happen this offseason, and of course you land one superstar this offseason. The franchise is forever changed. So check out those two pieces coming up this week on philliesnation.com. Tim Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we'll be right back with Sports Talk Philly historical columnist Matt Albertson. back with this trade deadline edition of the Phillies Nation podcast. And so we're going to take a little trip down memory lane and look at one of the trade deadline deals of yesteryear, perhaps one of the more exciting ones in the history of the Philadelphia Phillies franchise for what it meant to the team that year towards the World Series and down the line. And to talk about it, we welcome Matt Albertson to the show. And Matt is the historical columnist for SportsTalkPhilly.com. What's up, Matt? How you doing? Great to be here. Yeah, so it's a trade deadline eve here. Uh, it's kind of unclear if the Phillies are going to be making any more moves before tomorrow's deadline at 4 o'clock Eastern. But let's talk about one that was made at the trade deadline in 2009. So why don't you t- give us a little background on, on what happened, who the Phillies were trying to get at the trade deadline, and what ended up happening. Sure. So, <clears throat> of course, the Phillies win the World Series in 2008. And coming into 2009, their favorite win the National League pennant again. Uh, and they were on the market for an ace. Roy Halladay was out there, and he was really the crown jewel that uh, GM Ruben Amaro was looking to get. And and the reason Halladay really didn't work out in 2009 at the deadline was primarily because all trade talks focused around uh, Dominic Brown, who was at that time rated by many pundits as uh, the top prospect in all of minor league baseball. So uh, that that got shot down quickly. Well, Cliff Lee was also available. Lee had pitched excellent the year before, 22-3, and three, a dynamite ERA. So um, they actually got a trade done on uh, July 29th with Cleveland Indians. And uh, they sent Carlos Carrasco, Jason Donald, Lou Marson, and Jason Knapp to Cleveland in exchange for uh, Cliff Lee and the oft-forgotten Ben Francisco. And, uh, of course, as we all remember, uh, Lee was dynamite down the stretch, had one of those incredible World Series moments in Game 1, and had that excellent catch in the sixth inning. Now, the trade that could have been, yeah, so Dominic Brown, for one week, if I understand it properly, 
was kind of ranked the top <laughs> prospect in baseball ahead of some guy. Maybe you heard of him named Mike Trout. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so it's very funny looking at these in retrospect. You know, as as the Phillies approach this deadline, I know we, we talk about untouchables like Sixto Sanchez, perhaps, and, and Scott Kingery was an, un- an untouchable for the Phillies for a while, and our untouchables of yesteryear ended up uh, being untouchable and never really made it anywhere. So it's very interesting. If you look at that return the, the Cleveland Indians got, the only one that really seemed to work out was Carlos Carrasco. And what a lot of people don't realize is Carrasco was actually designated for assignment by the Indians at one point. That's correct. So uh, Carlos Carrasco is still a fine major league pitcher. He's still still hanging around. And Cliff Lee is, of course, come and gone. So uh, speaking of coming and going, uh, so what ended up happening with Cliff Lee? What happened was uh, Lee was in the middle of uh, of his contract, and within 15 days after the conclusion of the World Series, a player can request a trade. Uh, and And if that team does not make a trade with that player by March 15th, he becomes a free agent. Uh, so Lee would have become a free agent at the end of the 2010 season. However, there is a caveat uh, that would have protected the club. Uh, if if Lee was not traded, the club would have had three additional years of control over Cliff Lee. So his his uh, free agent his free agency would have been pushed back to the 2012 season. So if he's a free agent at the end of 2010, he's 32 years old. If he's a free agent at the end of 2012, he's 34 years old. Obviously, that limits the uh, the kind of uh, money-making deal that he would get on free agent market, not just in overall money per year, but in, in terms of length, too. So that's a problem. And and what happens is, is uh, Lee's agent, Derek Browniker, doesn't want to outwardly say you know what we're going to request a trade because it would start this clock he was he was walking a tight rope and obviously the phillies were very interested in retaining cliff lee um and they offered an extension uh three-year extension 18 million dollars a year uh problem was browniker and lee were looking for something along the terms of six to seven years the same amount of money uh and the Phillies weren't prepared to do that because they were still trying to get Roy Halladay um, via trade. And so people often ask, why didn't they keep both of them? Did they really feel that the return from the Cliff Lee trade was actually substantial enough to warrant them not just, say, trading Joe Blanton for one prospect? Right. So what ends up happening is... Halliday agrees to a deal, and the players in there are are also kind of notable and kind of not. Travis Darno is the one that actually made anything of himself in the majors. Uh, so you got Travis Darno, Kyle Drabeck, and Michael Taylor going to Toronto in exchange for Roy Halliday. So in the past couple of months here, between 2009 and 2010, you've got Carrasco, Donald, Marson, Knapp. Darnold, Drabeck, and Taylor all going to other teams for two players. Now, while these two players are absolutely phenomenal, um, that depletes farm system. And uh, Philly's president, David Montgomery, is he's keen on that. He's aware of it. And and what happens is they can't keep Lee because David Montgomery wants to replenish the farm system. 
Obviously, the team's competing at a high pace, but the players are getting older. There's a small clock on the players that were on the roster at that time, so they wanted to continue the winning. And while it wasn't outwardly said, hey, Ruben, you've got to keep uh, Halliday and then trade Cliff Lee, you can't keep them both, uh, Amaro knew he only had one decision, or at least that's what he thought. So he ends up trading uh, Cliff Lee to Seattle for Philippe Almont, J.C. Ramirez, and Tyson Gillies. And interestingly, the only one of those players in the major leagues still, I believe, was J.C. Ramirez, although he might be on a, a major league disabled list, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but mm-hmm. he was actually finding his way into the major leagues, I know, is as most recently as last season, he might, I think in the spring training, he yeah, he ended up on the 60-day disabled list in the beginning of the season. So he, he made two, two appearances this year, and then I think he might have had Tommy John surgery or something like that, but... But other than that, for for this uh, for this trade, one re- one reliever, uh, kind of turned starter, uh, J.C. Ramirez is is in the major leagues and uh, just doing so so. He had a 4.15 ERA last year and 24 starts and 27 appearances for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and certainly not the return you want. So it's a fascinating story because at the time, the Phillies when they made that trade for Cliff Lee uh, originally, uh, they kind of felt like. They lost out on Halliday. Isn't that kind of what the fans thought? Yeah, it, it was it was kind of like a, a silver lining feeling, if you recall, because obviously Halliday is at the top of his game. He's the best pitcher by far in Major League Baseball. But you know what? Cliff Lee was a close second. So even though they missed out on Halliday at the time, they felt very comfortable with Cliff Lee. And, and you know, the proof was in the pudding. He pitched excellent down the stretch and into the World Series. And you got to wonder, too, having experienced all that from the perspective of a Phillies fan, you don't find ace pitchers very often, right? So <laughs> if you get your hands no. on one or you get your hands on two, you want to keep them long, long term. And, right. And I, from, tell us this wonderful resource you've been reading about this starting rotation from and you got a lot of this information from. Right. So the uh, the book actually came out in 2011, uh, written by Todd Zalecki and Jim Salisbury. Uh, it's called The Rotation. Uh, if you recall, 2011, the rotation of uh, Halliday, Lee, Roy Oswalt, and Cole Hamels. And heading into the trade deadline of 2009, they just had Cole Hamels, and it really all began from there. So make sure you check out Matt's piece on trade deadline history. It's coming out on Tuesday on the trade deadline itself. So please check that out at sportstalkphilly.com. Thanks for chatting, Matt. Thanks, I really appreciate it. And one more piece of fun to go. We'll be talking to Matt Vizi about Jim Tomey's Hall of Fame induction. So as the trade deadline approaches Tuesday, it's very easy to forget that Sunday was this year's Hall of Fame induction class. And one of the members of that Hall of Fame induction class is former Phillies first baseman Jim Tomey. Now check out a couple stories on philliesnation.com written by Matt Vizi on this Sunday, Hall of Fame Sunday. And we're here with Matt right now to talk about them. So what's up, Matt? 
Hey, Frank. How you doing? I'm doing great. And uh, you've been paying attention to, to Jim Tomey as he uh, entered Cooperstown here. And so let's talk a little bit about Jim Tomey, the Philadelphia Philly. Now, he's, he's not in the Hall of Fame as a Philly, but... Uh, you know, for the course of Philly's history, he was said to sort of transform this Philadelphia Phillies franchise forever. So tell us a little bit about Jim Tomey's Philadelphia Phillies career. Yeah, there are some people who I think have criticized uh, the team for kind of changing their qualifications and kind of lowering the number of years uh, in order to get Tomey in. But he certainly had a uh, an important role to play in bringing the franchise back from, it was at least a decade from the 1993 team, and then you, even there you would go back. That was kind of like a, that 93 team was kind of like an oasis in a, in a desert of uh, maybe 15 years where the team wasn't contending at all. So it was a long stretch uh, after the 1980 champions had kind of died out where the Phillies weren't doing anything. They, the veteran stadium was deteriorating. Uh, the new ballpark was coming, and the organization wanted a big bat, a big name, a drawing card for the for the new ballpark. And so they reached out. Tomey became a free agent, uh, kind of at the perfect timing, following the 2002 season. Now uh, they went out and wooed him with the help of a very famous. Uh, wooing help from the Philadelphia Electricians Union, uh, Johnny Docking Crew, and uh, Tommy himself uh, mentioned them today in his Hall of Fame ceremony. And so they, Phillies brought in Tomei, and he, he was everything that they needed him to be and wanted him to be, hoped that he would be. hit 47 homers his first year, which was the last year of Veteran Stadium, and I think it was something like 42 the following year when we opened up Citizens Bank Park. So, uh, basically transformed, uh, helped transform the, the franchise back into the expectation of winning. They went from a, gee, it would be nice if we could win again, to, hey, all of a sudden we got a new ballpark when it's filled to the rafters every night, and we do expect to win again. Uh, Tomei almost single-handedly brought that, uh, brought that, attitude back to the team and to the fan base. So he's a very important member of the of Philly's history, and he's on the Wall of Fame, and now he's in the Hall of Fame. So 2005, he got injured and kind of gave way for an opportunity for some other first baseman to, to get some at-bats, and that would be Ryan Howard, who goes on to win the National League Rookie of the Year honor. Uh, so talk a little bit about what happened when Phillies were confronted with Tommy and Howard how, how do you think that went down and how it ended up working out for, for the future of the Phillies franchise? You know, it was a little bit of a, a tough situation because there were some who, you know, you, you always have your, your people who bemoan spending big money, uh, want to see the next hot prospect get a chance instead. And Howard was coming. I mean, he was down in the minor leagues bashing home runs when Tomei was signed, and he was the future Howard. But uh, Tomei, you know, they needed him when they needed him. But what ended up happening was that the organization's hand was forced by Tomei's injuries in 2005. He he had a back issue. He had uh, some other problems. Uh, and the next thing you know, I think he spent two stints on the DL. <clears throat> that gave Howard his first real 
full-time opportunity. And at, when he got to play, which I believe was pretty much uh, because Jim had two stints on the DL then. So I think Ryan got called up and had got to a lot of playing time in May and looked pretty good. Tomei tried to come back, uh, got hurt again, and I think it was around June 30th was his last game of the year. So Howard played from then on. There was some talk that uh, they were trying to get Tomei back. Uh, they were, uh, now that they had Howard, there was some talk that Tomei might be dealt at the trade deadline, but Tomei was never able to get physically ready to where he could return. So he, he missed the rest of the season after June 30th. Now, Ryan's playing full-time the last three months of the season, and he showed everybody what, kind of like a preview of what he was going to do over the next five years or so. Uh, hit 22 home runs. 21 of them were after that July 1st you know, time that he took over full-time. And I won the NL Rookie of the Year award, and the rest was history. Tommy got traded that offseason in a big deal to the White Sox that brought Aaron Rowland in here. And uh, both both moved forward. Tommy bounced back. He had a real nice season, a couple of years with the White Sox uh, before you know, he kind of tra- started to peter out a little bit and his career finally tailed off. But um, Howard took off and helped the Phillies to the 2008 World Series, became the big piece. And very interestingly, when Ryan Howard was the one to be injured, in came Jim Tomey in 2012. Just a... Just a a quick moment. Obviously, that wasn't the core of Jim Tomey's career, but but what do you think that it meant for the Phillies that Jim Tomey would come back in 2012, even though he really didn't have it anymore to play first base? Well, it was the you know as you say, it was the end of his career. He was 40, 41 years old at the time. Uh, what was what, what the idea there was? The Phillies had been a winner for years at that point. Uh, they had won five straight NL East crowns, but Howard, very famously or infamously, had been injured at the very end of the 2011 NLBS with St. Louis, and he wasn't going to be ready to start the 2012 season. So the Phillies brought back uh, Tony, hoping to maybe catch lightning in a bottle, maybe thinking, look, we don't really need him to play 162, you know, if we can just get a couple of months out of Jim, the good veteran you know, slugger come in here and help carry us until Ryan's back. So Tommy came in and uh, he had a couple of hundred, maybe just short of that, played appearances, played in about 50, 60 games, and did hit eight home runs. But uh, as we know now, the 2012 team was pretty much you know, floundering after a certain point. It was pretty obvious that Howard and Utley were battled, both battling injuries. And it, it just, it was almost, everybody knows now in retrospect, but, you know, the, everybody was aging all at once. And it all caught up to them during that 2012 season. I think the Phillies saw the writing on the wall and they, you know, dealt uh, Big Jim out of town. He was traded sometime around that same June 30th date that he, got injured in 2005 he was traded around that same date in 2012 to Baltimore and finished up his career um, with a couple of months with the Orioles but that was his last season very interestingly too that he got to hit as a designated hitter for those few weeks prior and as interleague play kind of wrapped up that's when Tommy got traded and he very famously or 
in terms of 2012 goes, <laughs> had that nice walk-off home run against the Tampa Bay Rays, which was, which was pretty memorable, and even a home run in Baltimore against the Orioles before he joined them afterwards. Now let's take for a second to talk about his former skipper Charlie Manuel. Uh, your your piece that you uh, posted this afternoon talked a little bit about Charlie Manuel and had some of his words about his former player. Now. They go back a long way, so when Jim Tomey came up, uh, Charlie Manuel was the hitting coach for the Cleveland Indians, then he was the Indians manager. Uh, Some say that because Tomey was signed was the reason why Charlie Manuel came to the Phillies to begin with. He seemed to to be the guy that was there for Tomey, and of course, Charlie would be the one to get the Phillies their next World Series title. So talk a little bit about Charlie Manuel and Jim Tomey's relationship and kind of what Charlie had to say about Tomey today. Well, <clears throat> Tommy was the Indians' 13th round draft pick in that 1989 MLB June amateur draft. Uh, came out of an Illinois, Illinois Central College. And he, in the, at some point there, in the when Jim was starting out in the minor leagues with Cleveland, he met Charlie, uh, who was coaching in the Cleveland organization. And Manuel describes him as very shy, very tentative. And you can you can almost see that today from a mature, um, you know, a confident Jim Tomey that he still has a little bit of that understated, you know, per, part of his personality. Well, back then you can understand why a young guy, you know, with that same personality would have been considered shy. He describes him as Manuel, that is, describes him as one of the most dedicated and coachable guys that he ever ran into. So uh, Tomei and Manuel began working together pretty quickly. Tomei, in fact, a little bit uh, interestingly today in his speech, mentioned that Manuel in some way equated uh, Tomei's preparation with the, the movie The Natural and Roy Hobbs, with what Roy Hobbs was doing, that he could benefit from uh, the same kind of stuff. And, and so... Uh, he didn't really elaborate on that, but it was pretty interesting that he mentioned it. So that's how far back they go to those late 80s, 1989, um, when he was first drafted. And then Tommy says from that day on, all they did was work, work, work it some more. And uh, like you said, Manuel was the hitting coach for those great Cleveland teams of the 1990s. They won five straight AL Central crowns uh, to wrap up the 90s. Then Manuel becomes the head coach of the Indians in 2000. So he and Tommy are together through this whole time, first as the hitting coach for a long stretch and then as the manager. Manuel gets <clears throat> fired in the middle of the 2002 season over what's been called the salary dispute. And I don't know that it's necessarily a surprise that Tommy left by a free agency after that season. Now, Tommy signs here before Manuel becomes the manager. Charlie didn't become the manager here until 2005. So Larry Boa was Tommy's first manager here. And Jim did uh, thank Larry Boa for the influence that he had on him when he first arrived here in Philly. So uh, Tommy arrives, I'm sorry, Charlie arrives in 2005. And unfortunately, that's the year that Tommy kind of has his physical problems with the Phillies. So they were really only reunited here in Philly for about two or three months. And then uh, 
and you know, Tony started having his injury issues and was gone for the season. And the rest is history. And Jim Tomey is now on the Hall of Fame. I encourage you to check out both of Matt's pieces, which you can find currently on philliesnation.com. Thanks, Matt. No problem, Frank, anytime. And that'll do it for episode 48 of the Phillies Nation podcast. We thank Matt Albertson, Matt Vizi, and Tim Kelly for joining us this time. And we hope to catch you next time, which should be a Phillies Alumni Weekend 2008 Special Edition. Until then, have a wonderful week. <laughs>